You're listening to the Cornerstone Chapel High School Youth Ministry. Let's head into the service for this week's message. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. Well, Christmas is fast approaching. It feels a little bit like Christmas in Miami, being 70. Uh, but, you know, we really, we all love Christmas, right? It's time off school. Uh, you get to hang out with your family, with your friends, drink some eggnog, sing some carols, sit by the fire. Who will have family coming into town for Christmas? You have family coming into town? Who's traveling for Christmas? Going to go out of town. Yeah. It's funny because if you spend enough time with family over Christmas, shh, spend enough time with family over Christmas, there's inevitably some good stories that happen. I just think if you get my entire family together for a couple hours all in one place, and you know, you maybe only see your family a couple times a year, maybe just once a year at Christmas, and there's always some crazy things that happen. Um, I've got some grandparents, and God bless them, they love the Lord, they're wonderful people, but they are very old, and they are very forgetful. And my grandmother, I love her. She, again, she's a great lady. But I remember a couple years ago at Christmas, uh, they came over and it was time to open presents. And I've got a younger brother who's here, Danny. I'll tell a story on him. Uh, Because she came and it was time for Danny to open the presents that Grandma Shirley had brought him. And so he opens up his present. And and I think in in her mind, we're all still like six years old. He was 15 at the time. And so he opens up his present and kind of looks with a little bit of bewilderment and holds up this shirt and it's a Spider-Man shirt. And it's like the size in it is for toddlers age two. And he kind of looks at it and looks at her and looks at us and looks back at it. And she's like, well, 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 you know, try it on, see if it fits. And he looks at it and he looks at her and he looks back at us. And we're kind of like, well, what do you tell him, you know? And she's old and so we're like, Daddy, just go, go ahead and try it on. And so he's standing there in the middle of our, you know, room on Christmas, and he's pulling this shirt on, and he can barely get it on. You can see the bottom half of his body hanging out of it, and the sleeves come down to about here. And she looks at it and goes, it's nice. And he's like, well, it's a little small. And she says, just cut the sleeves off. And so that was her solution for his, uh, for his Christmas sweater. But you always have some good stories. In fact, the same, uh, same grandparents, they often they forget where we live, and so they go to our neighbor's house for Christmas. And so our neighbor has to call and say, come collect your grandparents. <laughs> but so there's some good stories from Christmas, spending time with family, spending time with each other. But really the greatest story of Christmas is the Christmas story, and it's what you guys are familiar with. And that's what we're going to study together this morning. So if you would, look with me at Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2. Hopefully you guys are all there by now. We'll start in verse 1. It says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. 
He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Well, let's pray before we dive into our Bible study. God, we are just grateful for this morning that we can gather together and that we can study your word, Lord. And we thank you for the Christmas story. It's the greatest story ever told, Lord. You've been telling even since creation, Lord. And the climax of the story was you sending your son into the world. And we thank you for that. We pray this morning that as we study it, you'd give us ears to hear and a heart that's receptive to your message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in the early morning hours of June 6, 1944, the Allied forces, uh, they gathered off the coast of northern France, right off the coast of Normandy. And they would begin at uh, first light what would be uh, known as D-Day. It was the greatest invasion the world had ever seen. The Allied forces were comprised of about 156,000 fighting men who were ready to storm the beaches that were fortified by the Axis powers that was Nazi Germany. And so they would begin, and over the next month, there would be an invasion of 1.3 million soldiers into Europe. And they would begin the campaign that would go back and it would free mainland Europe from the, uh, the Axis powers. But again, it's kind of the greatest invasion the world's ever seen. History's enshrined that day as D-Day. And it's something that we watch movies about. If you guys have seen Band of Brothers, there's a, a whole episode kind of devoted to that. Uh, you know, Saving Private Ryan. All that kind of stuff comes from that story. But the Bible gives us an account of an even greater invasion. See, this invasion didn't include tanks and, and ships. It wasn't identified by bombs or bullets, but by a baby. It's a story of when heaven invaded earth. And see, rather than manifesting the armies of heaven, rather than invading earth in chariots of fire, God decided that he would enter the world on a cold night in a small town in a lonely manger as a baby. See, the world into which Christ came was the perfect setting for God to make his humble entrance into the world. And this is what theologians call the incarnation. It's God divesting himself of the glory of heaven and entering into our world. In fact, John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And that's what the Christmas story is. See, uh, to begin the under, to understand the significance of the incarnation, though, you have to understand the significance of what God was doing in this invasion to the world. And to be able to do that, you have to understand the context into which Christ came. And so to do that this morning, there's kind of two aspects of the Christmas story, two aspects of the context that we need to understand. We're going to look at first the historical context. Uh, and then second, the heavenly context. But the first thing we need to talk about is the historical context. And you can take notes of that this morning. That's the first thing we're going to look at. The historical context of Christ coming. And that's what we see here in Luke chapter 2. See, the previous 500 years of history in the land of Israel had been anything but peaceful. It had been a time characterized by conflict and by turmoil. In fact, in 586, the Babylonians came in and they took the Israelites who were living in the land of Israel and they shipped them off to Babylon. And they came back in and they repopulated the area with other peoples they had conquered. Seventy years later, the Jews returned from Babylon, and they returned to the land of Israel. And in 515, they rebuilt their temple. In the next 500 years, 
It was going to be one empire after the next coming in and conquering this land of Israel. After the Babylonians, it was the Persians. That was the power that arised from the Far East. And you guys are familiar with the story of Xerxes. And the Persian Empire grew to be one of the biggest the world had ever seen. And they decided they were going to begin their conquest heading west. And they went into Greece. And there was the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis and Marathon. And the, the, Greek, uh, the Greek Empire was a little more... Uh, they bit off a little more than they can chew uh, with them. And the Greeks... Uh, overran the Persians, and then there was the conquest of Alexander the Great, who conquered the world in 13 years. He went as far as India and brought elephants back with him to the Middle East. But he conquered the land of Israel. And after the Greeks, there was a group of people called the, called the Hasmoneans. And after them, there was the Romans. So in the span of 500 years, there was about five major empires that came through the land. It was characterized by turmoil and conflict and by war. And it had been 500 years since the Israelites had any, any sort of self-rule, any sort of say in their own fate. But finally, in the year 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey, you guys are probably familiar with him, he came in, and for the Romans, he conquered the land of Israel. And that was the beginning of what the Roman poet Virgil would call the Pax Romana. You guys have probably learned about that in history. It was the beginning of a period of about 300 years of relative peace. And it was the first time the land had seen peace in, uh, in millennia, really. But Pompey comes in, and he, uh, he marches on Jerusalem, and they conquer Israel. And, uh, and it brings about this period of peace. And Christ was born right about 4 B.C. uh, is kind of what historians tend to think. And so that was the setting of when Christ came. It was a time for the first time in a long time that there was peace in the the land. But to kind of begin to understand the historical context of the story, look with me again at verse 1 in chapter 2 of Luke. And it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Well, if you guys remember your Roman history very well, you'll remember a guy named Julius Caesar. Who's learned about Julius Caesar in history? Awesome, quite a few of you. Well, Julius Caesar, he was the first uh, emperor of Rome, the first real emperor. Rome originally was a republic. There was the Senate. And the Senate still existed when Caesar came in, but it was kind of a shift in the government of Rome. And Caesar comes along. He'd been a Roman general who was very successful. And, uh, and so he's the first emperor. However, on March 15th, 44 BC, he was assassinated. And you guys are probably familiar with the story. One of his close friends, Brutus, and another man named Caius came and they stabbed him in the back. In fact, Brutus is named that we get our word brutal from that, uh, from the treatment he uh, had on his friend that he killed him. Now, there's a couple characters in the story you need to understand. So there's Julius Caesar. He was assassinated by Brutus and by Caius. But there's two other guys who are important. There's a guy named Octavian and a guy named Mark Anthony. Octavian was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Mark, Mark Anthony was one of his friends. And Octavian was so enraged by these guys that came and assassinated his uncle, he decided that he was going to go after him. He kind of had a vendetta for them. So Brutus and Caius, after they kill Caesar, they escape to Egypt. They go south, and they're kind of seeking refuge uh, in Egypt. But Octavian goes after him. And after a couple-year uh, kind of chase throughout the Middle East, Octavian finally uh, gets his revenge on them, and he kills Brutus and Caius. And so he returns, and Mark Anthony, his friend, is the same Mark Anthony and Cleopatra you're familiar with from history. But he returns to Rome in triumphal procession, and Octavian becomes the next emperor of Rome. And when he gets back to Rome, he changes his name from Octavian, who would blame him, uh, and he takes up the name of his uncle, Caesar, and he changes his name to Caesar Augustus. And so the Caesar Augustus you see here in Luke chapter 2 is the same Caesar Caesar Augustus who's the nephew of Julius Caesar. And so that's important to remember as well. In verse 2, in Luke chapter uh, 2, tells us that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. 
And again, the land of Israel was a province uh, of the Roman Empire, but it was one that was characterized by turmoil. It was kind of the last place that Rome conquered as it was expanding uh, its kind of empire around the Mediterranean. And it was really an unruly province. They were constantly having issues with the people there uh, in some sort of rebellion or something like that. Uh, so it was kind of the, the uh, thorn in the uh, back of Rome, if you will. And in verse 4, uh, it says this, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting, to ch- uh, and expecting a child. And so we're introduced here to a man named Joseph. And Joseph is a good man, and he lives in this town called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is in the northern part of Israel. And you can see it up there on the map. It's on the top. And it's out not far from the Sea of Galilee. And it's a beautiful little town. You can go to Nazareth today and check it out. Uh, now, I've got to say, Nazareth today is probably not as nice as it was in the time of Jesus. Uh, who's seen The Emperor's New Groove? Yeah? That's a great movie. You remember the town, you remember the town that Pacha lives in? It's the little town, and they, uh, Cusco wants to build Cusco-topia there. And it sits kind of on top of the hill, right? You remember the town? Well, I want you to imagine Nazareth kind of like that. I remember the first time I went to Nazareth. Uh, it's even got, like, the nice little hillside and stuff and the little village uh, unfortunately, it's been built up around there today, but Nazareth's a beautiful little town, and that's where Joseph lived, and that's where Mary lived. It would have been a town of a couple thousand people, but, you know, this, this time comes for them. They've got to travel down to Bethlehem, and you can see on your map, uh, if you look at it, Nazareth is about 80 miles north of Bethlehem. Bethlehem's down in the, uh, in the area of the Judean wilderness, and Nazareth would be kind of a nice area, kind of green, rolling hills, great for farming. Uh, Bethlehem's a little more in the desert mountains. It's not far from the Dead Sea. and It would have been a very kind of different looking climate. But it's an 80 mile journey through the mountains from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now if you guys think about 80 miles, I think King's Dominion's about 80 miles away. And how long does it take to go in a car? Like two hours? After a two hour car ride, I'm ready for a nap usually. But imagine, imagine this journey, 80 miles on a donkey. And imagine 80 miles on a donkey and you're pregnant. I mean, how terrible would that be? It was probably about a week it took them to go down there. Uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, the next picture here is of Bethlehem. That's modern Bethlehem. Uh, it's a little dark. Who thinks that uh, picture's photoshopped? It kind of is. Uh, but the bottom part is really Bethlehem. We made it look like night because it just seems better if it looks like night. Uh, but anyways, that's, that's the modern town of Bethlehem. And it's a town of about 25,000 people now. But Bethlehem's an important city in the Bible. Um, it would have been, at the time of Jesus, a city of less than 1,000 people. Most of your high schools are bigger than 1,000 people. But modern Bethlehem is about 25,000 people. But it's an important city. And in Hebrew, it's Bethlehem, and it means house of bread. Uh, but it's also known, and verse 4 tells us, as the town of David. And that's a significant thing, because, see, the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament had to be of the lineage of David. And what's more, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1, it traces the lineage of Joseph uh, through David, that he's of royal blood. And so this is the perfect setting. It's setting up for Christ to be born as well. And we're also introduced to Mary. And Matthew 1.18 tells us that she was with child through the Holy Spirit. See, the, uh, the baby she was carrying was from God. And verse 6 and 7 kind of completes the story in Luke chapter 2. That while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And this is the Christmas story that most of us know. It's the ones that you see depicted on your postcards. It's the one that you were read, uh, had read to you in Sunday school. It's the one that families often tell. The world's at peace, it's a cold night and a lonely manger, and heaven invades earth in the form of a baby. And that's when Jesus was born. But see, to understand the full significance of the Christmas story, you have to understand not only the heavenly context, 
But you have to also understand, I'm sorry, the uh, historical, but the heavenly context. And that's the second thing we're going to look at. So if you can, in your Bibles, turn to, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And see, there's more going on to the story that meets the eye. There's uh, both the historical story of what happened. There's also the, what was going on in the heavenly realm. So Revelation chapter 12, we're going to read a couple verses. We'll jump around through the story there. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 says this. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with, clothed with the sun, uh, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven horns, uh, seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them down to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God into his throne. Jump down to verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole earth astray. He was hurled down to earth, and his angels with him. Jump down to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. He went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, to those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And this is kind of a bit of a cryptic passage. Let me do the best I can to explain it to you. But it's, it's the story of the birth of Christ from the heavenly perspective. And the first thing we're introduced to as we read through this passage is the woman in verse 1. Now the woman uh, represents the nation of Israel. We know that uh, one of the big reasons is because the, uh, the 12 stars on her head. And if you understand um, a little bit of Bible study, it's in other places in in the Bible this would represent the nation of Israel. And so just for the sake of consistency, we understand that's the nation of Israel. But the second thing you see is the enormous red dragon, and that's Satan. Uh, Verse 9 tells us that. Verse 3, we're introduced to the enormous red dragon, but later on in uh, verse 9 it tells us that's the devil or Satan. The next thing you see are stars, specifically the stars that are swept from the sky. And those are demons. Now, it's important to understand real quick just kind of the context of what's going on here. See, Satan was created as an angel. He was created as, in fact, one of the highest order of angel. But pride filled his heart and he rebelled against God. That He decided that he was going to be like God. We see that in the Old Testament in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. Both talk about this a little bit. But when he rebelled in heaven, uh, as many as a third of the angels decided, you know what, he's got a pretty good idea. You know, we want to be like God as well and they're going to go with him. And so those are the, uh, the stars that you see represented here that are swept out of the sky. And they're called fallen angels or demons. And so it's important to understand that as well. And the next thing then you see is the male child. We see that in verse 5, and that's Jesus. We know that because he's the ruler of the nations. And later on in verse 17, it identifies this as Jesus. And so here's kind of the story is what was going on with the birth of Christ? See, God was invading the world, and this was something that Satan didn't want to see happen. See, he understood enough to know that man was sinful, and because man was sinful, they belonged to the dominion of Satan. But God was coming to do something different. He was coming to redeem mankind, that we were no longer bound by sin and death. And so Satan, again, this is the story of kind of the attempt of Satan uh, to foil God's plan, but we know we can't do that. But this, this story highlights the heavenly significance of the birth of Christ. It's kind of from a different angle. Now, it's important to point out as well that Satan is not the true enemy. He's just kind of the representation of the forces of the enemy. See, the true enemy is sin and death. That's what Christ came to conquer. Remember at Matthew 1, 21, 
what the angel told Joseph. He said that you will name him, this is the baby, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He didn't say they would say, that he would save them from Satan. He said he would save them from their sins. See, Christ came to conquer sin and death. Satan's already beat. He understands his, he understands his fate. And he wants to bring as many people as he can with him. Now, man was created, Genesis 1 tells us, in the image and likeness of God. That when God was going about creation, that he created man, and we, we are kind of the pinnacle of his creation. It's a term that theologians use, it's called the Imago Dei. And it means that we are the image bearers of God, we're the representatives of God to the world. However, in Genesis 3, the fall happened. And the image of God in man was kind of marred, that we no longer were, uh, were exactly as we were created to be. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. You see, Christ came to redeem man from sin and death. He came to undo what was done in Genesis 3. He came to restore fellowship between God and man and allow man to be that image bearer of God. And so when you're examining the story of Christ, you have to understand both the, uh, the heavenly context and the historical context. When you see it, the historical context, it's a world at peace. It's the Pax Romana. It's the time of peace like the world has never seen before. But the second thing you have to understand is the heavenly context, and it's a world at war. For some reason, it says number one for both things. But the second thing is the heavenly context, a world at war. And there are kind of three timeless truths we can take away from this story. Three timeless truths we can take away from this story. And the first thing is that we live in a world at war. We live in a world at war. See, the reality is that you and I live in a combat zone, even if we can't see it. There's a constant battle being raged, and we're the prizes. Remember what Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 said? It says there's war in heaven, and there's war here today as well. Satan knows his future. He knows that he's destined for hell, and he's destined for destruction. But like that old saying, misery loves company? Well, he wants to take as many people as possible with him. And see, you and I are the prize. We're at war. Revelation 12, 17 tells us that the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against her offspring to those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that's you and me. I don't know if you guys watch the news or if you follow the news very closely. Who's seen what's going on recently with the Duck Dynasty guys? You guys have seen that? Well, if you haven't, let me read you just a quick news excerpt real quick. This is from the New York Times. It came out on Wednesday. Uh, for those of you that don't watch Duck Dynasty, it's funny. I like it. Not everybody does. Um, but they're uh, a Christian group of people. Um, and recently... Um, Phil Robertson, who's kind of the leader of the group, was suspended from his show on A&E. But it, let me read you the article. It says this, quote, The A&E Network announced Wednesday night, the 18th, that it has suspended Phil Robertson, the patriarch of the Duck Dynasty clan, in the wake of anti-gay statements he made in GQ magazine. A&E said that Mr. Robertson had put on an, was put on an indefinite hiatus from the show, which is by far the biggest hit on the network. In a statement the network said, this is what A&E said, we are extremely disappointed to have read Phil Robertson's comments in GQ, which are based on his own personal beliefs and are not reflected in the series Duck Dynasty. His personal views in no way reflect those of A&E Network, who have always been strong supporters and champions of the gay community, end quote. The first thing this, guys. If you don't want to know what a 67-year-old man from Louisiana thinks, don't ask him. <laughs> Second thing, who's the intolerant ones now? But the third thing is you have to understand that he's proclaiming truth. He's saying what the Bible says about it. He's not, that's not just Phil Robertson's opinion. That's the biblical opinion that, that gay marriage is wrong. It's sinful. But we live in a society that calls evil good and good evil. We're at war if you didn't know. You were born into a world at war and you're going to live all your days in the midst of a great battle involving all the forces of heaven and hell played out here on earth. And we have to be ready. 
See, it's important to remember, though, one other thing, that we're not fighting to victory. It's not like this is all resting on our shoulders, but we're fighting from victory. Christ has already conquered sin and death. We're not slaves to it any longer. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this, that Christianity teaches us that the universe is at war. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise. And it's calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. See, we're on, if, we're, if we're Christians, if we proclaim Christ as our Savior, we're on the side, on his side, and we're, making, uh, we're in this kind of constant battle with the enemy. And that's why Paul in Ephesians 6 reminds us that we've got to put on this full armor of God so that we can take our place in the fight. I love what Billy Graham once said. He says, when Satan knocks at the door, I just send Christ to answer it. The first thing we see, the first truth that we learn from the Christmas story is that the world's at war. But the second thing we learn is that things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem. I mean, look at the contrast between the historical and the heavenly perspective with the birth of Christ. See, in the historical perspective, you see this world, and it's a world at peace. It's peace like the world had never seen before, this Pax Romana. For the first time, there is this one empire that kind of unified the entire Mediterranean area. But all of a sudden, Revelation 12 tells us that there's war in heaven. And there's such a contrast that comes from there. Imagine yourself in those shoes for a minute. Imagine that maybe you're the innkeeper. You're just somebody who lives in this little town of Bethlehem. And you're watching, watching this man and this woman kind of make their way through the town. And there's this cry of a baby late at night. I love the way uh, the author Max Lucado describes the scene. Let me read you what he wrote. He said, at this point in, uh, in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what he is doing is a teenage girl in smelly stables. She can't take her eyes off him. Somehow Mary knows she is holding God. So this is he, she wonders. She remembers the word of the angel. His kingdom will never end. But he looks anything but a king. His face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby. And he is absolutely dependent upon Mary for his well-being. It's majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the floor, entering the world through the floor of a stable, through the womb of a teenager in the presence of a carpenter. This baby had overlooked the universe. The rags that were keeping him warm are the robes of eternity. His golden throne had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. And the worshiping angels had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. But meanwhile, the city hums. Merchants are unaware that God had visited their planet. The innkeeper would not believe that he had just sent God out into the cold. And the people would scoff at anyone who told them the Messiah lay in the arms of a teenage girl on the outskirts of their village. They were all but too busy to consider the possibility. See, there's more going on to life than meets the eye. And we don't always see this war happening, but you have to understand that it's a reality. There's two stories I just want to briefly reference in the Bible that remind me of this. The first thing's in 2 Kings chapter 6. You guys remember uh, the stories of the prophets. There's Elijah and Elisha. And they come at a time of um, kind of a lot of conflict going on in Israel's history. And uh, in Elisha, there's a story in 2 Kings 6 that he had kind of come and he'd, he'd proclaimed judgment against this king of Aram. Uh, the nation, and, uh, and so this king was really upset with what Elijah was saying, and he sent his, uh, basically his army out to get him. Elijah's, uh, Elisha's in this city called uh, Dothan, and so uh, anyways, one morning he's staying there, and his servant who's with him gets up early and steps outside, and you know, maybe he's kind of stretching in the morning, and he looks around, and on the hillside surrounding the city is this army that's come to get him. And he knows right away what it is. And so he kind of freaks out. And he runs back inside and he wakes Elisha up. And he says, come outside, you've got to see this, you've got to see this. And Elisha steps out, no doubt a little bit groggy, just kind of waking up. And he looks around. And surrounding their entire city is this army that's come to capture him and to kill him. 
I love what Elisha does. He doesn't pray, God, would you get rid of this army? He doesn't begin to run away. But he closes his eyes and he prays and he says, God, I, I ask that you would open his, being open my servant's eyes that he may see. And they open their eyes and the servant looks up and he can see chariots of fire surrounding this army that had come to get him. And it's awesome because there's so much more going on than we would ever see. So much more that, that we, um, that's going on in the spiritual realm than we can perceive with our own eyes, that we can perceive with our own senses. And so there's, there's that story in 2 Kings 6. Uh, there's another story of Daniel in the Old Testament. You guys are familiar with Daniel. That took place during the time of the Babylonian exile. But there's one specific instance where he has this vision. And he has this vision from heaven. And he's greatly distressed. He's really just kind of upset by what he sees. And so he prays and asks God, what does this mean? And for 21 days, he just kind of lays there. He's too, he's too just exhausted by this to do anything. And there's no answer to his prayer for 21 days. Have you ever felt like that? You pray and you ask God something and there's just no answer. Well, finally, after 21 days, this angel comes to him. And Daniel says, hey, where, where have you been? I'm glad that you're here now, but where have you been? And the angel says to him, he says, the day that you prayed, I was dispatched from heaven to come with an answer. But he says, I was detained for 21 days by this evil force. There was war that happened. And until Michael the archangel came and helped me, I wasn't able to come to you. But he came, helped me, and I was able to come. But see, there's more going on than meets the eye. The angel was dispatched from heaven the day that Daniel prayed, but it was 21 days before he could get there. And you have to understand that because we live in a a world at war, there's war that goes on in a realm beyond what we can see. Things are not not what they seem. But that brings us to our third point. And like Elijah and like Daniel, we have a role to play. You and I both have a role to play in this battle. Remember what God tells us, or what the Bible tells us, that mankind was created in the image of God, that we're destined to be the image bearers of God to the world, that we were created in the Imago Dei. And we were, as the pinnacle of creation, we're supposed to be the representative of God to the world. But the problem is we don't look very much like that. We look at you and I, and, you know, I know most days I don't reflect Christ very well. So how do we do that? How is it that we're transformed into that? See, Christ came to defeat sin and death, but now it's a process that happens in each one of us. I love what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, these eternal words. It says, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, it's the power of God through the Holy Spirit that works in us to transform us into those image bearers of God, that we can be the representatives of God to the world. That's how we take our place in the battle. That's the role we have to play is to represent God to the world, to share his love and the forgiveness that he offers, the defeat over sin and death with a lost and dying world. See, Christ came to save mankind from the power of sin and death, and, uh, and it's our destiny to be representatives of God to the world. A couple things for you to remember, though, in closing. This applies to you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have Christ living in you, yet you're on his side of the battle. But maybe there's some of you here this morning who aren't. Let me tell you this. If you're not a Christian, you have to decide which side you're on. And there's no neutral ground in this fight. Either you're on the side of Christ or you're on the side of the enemy. That's a decision that everybody has to make. But choosing just to deal with it later or choosing that, "Ah, I'm not going to make a decision, you're siding with the enemy when you do that. It takes a volitional choice to be on the side of Christ. That's something you have to understand. But for those of us that are believers, we need to remember that the world's at war. And that things aren't what they seem. There's more going on in this world than meets the eye. But you have a role to play. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can fight that good fight. We, fight. we can finish the race. We can put on that full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, we have the power to stand. And in closing, let me leave you with the words of Jesus. In John chapter 16, he said this. 
He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And isn't that a great thing? That even though in this world we're in the midst of a battle, that we live all of our days in the midst of a fight for our souls, that he's overcome the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful, Lord, for what you did in the birth of Christ. We thank you that you came down to save us, Lord. You did for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, we thank you that you've been telling a story throughout all of eternity. And it's the story of the redemption of man through the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you're coming again. And God, we ask that even in this time that you would help us to remember that we live in a world at war. Lord, that things aren't what they seem. And that we must do our part to fight the battle. That we must put on your full armor to stand. That we have a destiny to, to fulfill as the image bearers of God and as your representatives to the world. We ask that you would give us strength today to do that. And we ask that we, as we approach Christmas, Lord, that you would help us to remember the Christmas story. Lord, you would help us to keep our focus on you. That we wouldn't just focus on the things around us, Lord, but we'd be looking unto you. That's what we give you today, and we give you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. For additional teachings and to learn more about the Cornerstone Chapel Youth Group, visit us online at cornerstonechapel.net.